Hi, this is Robert Furl, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what we are to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. There's a lot of nuances in the Scripture, and it takes a lot sometimes to make your way through the nuance. So if you have a question, write the word question or a cue in front of your question, reread it a couple of times to make sure it makes sense, and make sure that you specify what your question is in the text, because sometimes it's hard to determine what portion of the verse you might be talking about. And uh, then go ahead and submit it, and we will take time to answer it. It's good to see you guys. Our first question comes from the teaching that we had this weekend on Palm Sunday. Now, this is the triumphal entry of Jesus. And someone asked me, what changed the crowd's mind? And this is something that you hear preachers say from time to time. I think perhaps in the past I've even said it. The problem with Palm Sunday is that every year it comes around. And the text, it's in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but it's very brief. And it doesn't have a lot of details. So as a pastor, you start looking for things to really be able to expound on and find application. And one of the areas that people have done it, and I think most pastors have done this, is that they talk about the fickleness of the crowd. That the crowd that hailed him as king on Palm Sunday also cried out to crucify him just you know, within the next Friday. And so crowds are so fickle and man can be fickle. Therefore, don't put your trust in men. Don't listen to the flattery of certain people and don't listen to the criticism of others. Really seek to please God and live after him. Now, the advice from this point is awesome. It's timeless to not put your trust in men, that men oftentimes will say good things to you just because they want to flatter you. And sometimes, like it says in Proverbs, uh, they want, they, they use flattery to get something from you. Other times people are overly critical. And, it, and I can tell you from a pastor of almost 40 years now, well, 40 years as a youth pastor and pastor, that Criticism can be devastating. You get a lot of criticism. They say that it takes 10, 15 encouragements to, to reverse a criticism that someone brings you. You just learn to take it personal. And I've learned to have a duck's back. Uh, and I got that from Charles Swindoll, a study I listened to very early when I was ministering at like 25 years old, that as a pastor, you can't be sensitive. You can't you got to have a duck's back. Things have to roll off. You got to have rhinoceros hide, he said, to be able to take what people say. So the point is good, but here's the problem. Josephus tells us that Jerusalem would swell by hundreds of thousands of people during Passover in the first century, which means there were a lot of people there. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on Sunday, and he's got a crowd of people going with him, and the Bible identifies them as disciples. Certainly, there were other people that joined them along the road who weren't necessarily his disciple as they were singing the Psalms of Ascent and as they went up to the temple with Jesus. However, the Bible also identifies the crowds that are jeering, crucify him, to be a crowd that was joined before the uh, court of Pilate and being egged on by the Pharisees' men to release Barabbas and to crucify Jesus. It's very unlikely that there would be very many from both crowds. That the one crowd coming in on one day when there would be people traveling all the time in there. It's possible that within the few hundred or thousand people or so that were with Jesus and they made his way up on the triumphal entry, that none of them were in the crowd that cried out crucified him. If there were any, it would only be just a few. It's not like there was just a crowd of a thousand people wandering around yelling crucify him on, on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, whatever day you believe Jesus was crucified on. And they were the same crowd that was hailing him as king as he made his way in. And uh, it's probably a good thing for us pastors to stop using that as a point of application. Uh, unless you can maybe change it a little bit and say, this crowd hails him as king, and another crowd will cry out, crucify him. We shouldn't listen to what men say, but seek to please God. Because the flattery of some can have motives behind it, 
and the criticism of others could have jealousy and, and maybe honesty behind it. You know, there, there's a, a nugget of truth in every criticism. So it's good to be open to criticism, but still we're human. And sometimes words can hurt as hard as being hit. So maybe we should just change the analogy and stop saying the same crowd that, that hailed him king is the same crowd that cried out, crucify him. And this is a problem that's not caused by people just reading their Bible. It's a problem that's caused by pastors. Because like I said, 11 verses in Luke, I think just, just even fewer in the book of John and about the same in Mark and Matthew. And so it's hard to find that point of application. And so teaching the word of God, you just got to be careful to be accurate. You want to be as accurate as you possibly can be. It doesn't mean you're never going to make a mistake. The Bible says if a man is perfect in the things that he says, he's perfect in everything. And since we know that pastors aren't perfect, they are not going to say everything perfect. So thank you uh, to my wife for asking that question. Uh, and we are going to look for questions. If you have questions about Palm Sunday, we just went through it. You went to church. Uh, you heard a message on it. Maybe you still have questions. I would like to use this opportunity to answer questions that you may have about Palm Sunday. We have another study tonight where we're going to be talking about Paul making sure that he had the right gospel. He defends the gospel. And um, in our Q&A on Saturday, we'll be answering any questions that you might have from our study that we have on Wednesday night. Uh, we also are inviting new believers to join us for these Q&As. And so if you have really basic questions, there's no question that is too basic. If you're a new believer and you want to know what you need to do as a Christian to be strong and to be established, then please ask your questions. All right. So um, let's go ahead and take our first question here. It's good to see you guys here showing up. And we have our first question from Andre. Andre, you got the first one. Uh, saying concerning things, and by the way, you always give challenging questions, so I like it. Concerning things our Lord hates, can you explain Solomon's math in Proverbs 16 through 19? Um, in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Okay, I was going to say it's too long of a text, Andre. Um, but, but yeah, let me go ahead and go to uh, Proverbs 6. And then we're going to go to 16 through 19, and I'll put it on the I'll put it up on the page um, up on the screen for you guys, so you can read it. And I'm not sure what this this text is, Andre. So let's go ahead and go to it, and let's read what it says. Let me just see if there's any. The wicked man, it says in verse 12, and then we get to verse 16. It says, Ah, okay, I know what you're I know which one you're talking about now. All right. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord. All right, so before I, I, I want to cover these six things uh, quickly here in a moment, but I want to answer your question first. So explain the math. So six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. So let's count up what he goes over. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, that's four. Feet are swift in running to evil, that's five. Six is a false witness who speaks lies, and seven is one who sows discord among brethren. Okay, so he ends up with a total of seven. That's good since he said seven. So there are six things the Lord hates and there are seven that are an abomination to him. So my first thoughts on this, Andre, is that this is a, this is a literary style to help make a point. He's using a literary device. Six things God hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. And the word seven in the Bible is the number of completeness. The word six is the number of man. So if this numerology were known by a Solomon, we assume it's Solomon here, then maybe he's saying there are six things in man that God hates. And there's a completion of seven things. You know, there's seven days in a week. There's seven notes. Um, and it goes on. Seven really represents completeness. And anytime you find it in the Bible, it's worth looking at it. Jesus said, I am seven times in the book of John. And so I think that he's saying, 
these things, these seven things are complete and they are an abomination to God. And if God hates these seven things more than he hates anything else, and six of them are a type of who man is, let's read through them. So uh, it says, uh, these six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, being haughty. We know that God exalts the humble, but brings down the prideful, which is why we want to fight against pride all of the time. A lying tongue. Now, this is interesting because in the Ten Commandments, it says, don't bear false witness. And I'll often point out that thou shalt not lie is one of the Ten Commandments. But it is one of the things that God hates. A lying tongue. Just someone that just wants to tell lies all the time because we're telling lies to make ourselves look good. By the way, it's one of the ways that we know that the scriptures are not written in order to try to make Jewish people look good. They weren't written at an earlier date um, or, a, or a later date trying to make Jews look good because all the Jews look bad in it. They don't lie and tell these great stories about the men in the Bible. They, um, they tell the truth about them and they don't come out looking really good. Um, hands that shed innocent blood. And of course we can put abortion in that, but just someone who kills innocent people. What a horrible thing. A heart that devises wicked plans, abomination to God. Uh, feet that are swift in running to evil. Uh, this one could be more of us at certain times in our lives. Uh, a mob that, that chases someone down in order to kill them. A false witness who speaks lies. Now, this is what the Ten Commandments says. A false witness. So, um, you're slandering someone. And that is particularly evil. One who sows discord among brethren. So, someone who, instead of being, um, instead of being a peacemaker, trying to pit somebody against something else. Did you know so-and-so said this about you? So these are the seven things that God hates. I think I answered your question, Andre, um, as I kind of have a track record here of not answering the questions people are asking. Uh, if I didn't do that here, then let me know, all right? But I think I got it, all right? So a literary device, six things God hates, seven things are an abomination to him. I think that's what he was doing. Let me go ahead and get back to the first question here, and we will bring in our second question, which is from Psychman45. Psychman, good to see you. Hope things are going well. Um, can, uh, can a hand causing a Christian to sin be used for good when it is not sinning? Oh, um, obviously, isn't Jesus saying, no matter if it is, if it is also does good, it's still got to go when he tells us to lop it off. All right, so I wanna make sure I get what your question is, psych man. Um, so you're asking when Jesus said, and if I, let me just kind of say back what your question is. If it's not right and I answer the wrong one, then rewrite it, rewrite it just another way where I can understand it. So you're asking where Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. Because it's better to go into heaven without a whole body than to be cast into hell where the fire doesn't go out and the worm never dies. And of course, he's talking in analogy here because no one goes into heaven without a hand. There are no lame, there are no, you know, you go into heaven, you're whole. So he's talking about an analogy. The analogy is in our lives, if there's something that's good, your right hand is good, you need it, especially if you're right hand dominant. Even if it's good, even if it's really good in your life, but it's causing you to sin, then get it out of your life. If something is good in your life, like for me younger, television became a distraction. And I got rid of the TV for a while. It was good because I had a lot of downtime. I mean, I, have, I didn't have a lot of downtime. When I had downtime, I could unwind by watching TV. But I got rid of it because I wasn't doing the work I was supposed to do as a youth pastor in preparing the study for the kids. This is all the way back in gosh, 82 or 83. So we got rid of the TV for a while because I needed to get rid of it. There may be things in people's lives that they have to get rid of in order to um, walk close with Christ. Uh, I have known men who have gotten rid of all computers or devices like iPhones that they can access pornography on because they just can't handle it. Better to get rid of it in a world where we're living in this kind of an environment where you need computers all the time, there are some that may need to cut it off. Obviously, it's good it's your right foot, your right eye, your right hand, 
all these things Jesus said are good and can be used for good things. But no matter how good the thing is, if it causes you to stumble or causes you to not follow Christ, then get rid of it. That in, in the past has been money. An example that I think of is Francis Chan. So Francis Chan was the pastor of a large church and he was becoming wealthy. He had written a book that had got him a lot of money and he began to look inside of his own heart. And he saw that, and I'm speaking for him now, I think I'm gonna represent him correctly, what he would say. He didn't like some things that he saw inside of him. He didn't like the growing pride. He didn't like the defensiveness. He didn't like the way he felt superior over other people. He didn't like the way the money made him feel. And so he sought to get out of his position as a senior pastor, to seek God and to seek how he could really go and minister to the poor, to get out of that role because he felt for him it was bad. And that is how I think this is supposed to be used. Certainly, the book, the book that he had written, I'm trying to remember the first one that he wrote um, that he made so much money off of, um, Crazy Love maybe? Maybe that was the title of it. Um, a good book, made a lot of money for him, but he backed away from all of it because he didn't like what it was doing to him as a Christian. And I think that's an example of what he's talking about, Psych Man. I think that answers your question, yes. Let me just read through it, it can. Um, be used for good or evil? Yes. Um, isn't Jesus saying no matter if it is, is, does good, it's still got to go? Yes. When he, when he tells you to lop it off. And again, I don't know that he's telling you to lop it off. Uh, he might be because it's, it's in your life and it's causing you to stumble, keeping you from Christ, not letting you be effective in your walk with the Lord, all of those things. And so Jesus says, get rid of it if it's going to stop you. Um, it kind of reminds me of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, where it says um, that, it, that we are to, um, let me just look it up. I don't want to misquote it. It's a verse I quote a lot, so I can't believe that I can't remember how it starts. Uh, it's funny, if you remember how it starts, you'll get it all. Um, but, um, okay, therefore also, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. A weight is not necessarily sin. But no one goes out to win a race like the 100-yard dash in the Olympics with, with a full set of clothes on, with even jeans and a t-shirt because they're going to bind them and keep them from running as fast as they can when, when, when tenths of seconds counts, maybe even less. They want to get rid of the weights. You want to run swiftly for Christ? Then lay every weight aside. And then it says, and the sin which so easily entangles us. So that's a different issue. When there's sin, you get entangled by it and it brings you down. So the sin, um, and uh, then it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has finished the race and he's helping you to be able to run that race effectively. So hopefully that answers your question, psych man. Yeah, God could tell you, you know, hey, that, that's got to go. This is keeping you from being close to me. This is bringing sin in your life. Like Francis Chan, this has to go. He made a radical change in his life. And I tell you, a lot of people didn't understand it. I remember hearing him and Mark Driscoll on the elephant room and Mark was kind of trying to rebuke him for it. And um, he stood his ground and, and, and said in front of everyone, there are things in my life I don't like. He said, I've got problems. And uh, so he made some radical changes in his life. Uh, in order to try to get rid of those problems. So I think that's what that passage is about. And perhaps it's good for all of us to look at our lives and to determine whether or not there's something in our life that absolutely has to go. All right, thank you. Um, Psych Man, good to see you. We have a question from Debbie. Debbie, it's good to see you. Pastor, do you have a recommendation as to the best version of the Bible done simply, still true to the word, easy to understand or paperback supplement to accompany my Bible studies. Thank you. All right, so the different versions have different qualities. Obviously, when the King James Version was written, it was really good for people that lived in 1611, but we don't talk that way anymore. And it's hard to really get a hold of what's being said sometimes because of it. 
So I use the New King James. They come from a certain set of texts. I believe it's the Masoretic text that it comes from. That's the same the King James did. They were texts that were around in 1611 and they, they, they bring it from that. We've had a lot more texts that have been found since then, by the way, um, that, that we can compare. And that's what we do. We have not, we didn't get a whole, I don't have my Bible here with me, but we don't get a whole book of the Bible floating down from heaven and then landing full and complete. We have manuscripts and there are so many manuscripts being discovered today. Remember Christianity spread not only up into Europe, but over into Alexandria, Egypt. And we found so much from both of those places where the gospel went early and then manuscripts that have been discovered 400, 500 years after Christ. Um, that still hold value because they're closer to the time that they were written. And those that do um, textual criticism, they're not criticizing the text, you awful horrible text. They're comparing scripture, they're comparing the different manuscripts. They're, com they're comparing which ones came from which. They're making tr um, a line like a tree graph out of it. And then they're going back and trying to figure out which one says the best thing. Um, one of the ones that uses more of the newer uh, manuscripts is the NIV and the ESV. If you really want the best work that's done word for word, that would be the NASB. And I think it uh, would be version 95 of the NASB. You can look this up on um, Bible Hub or on Blue Letter Bible, and you can look and compare the different versions. The argument against the NASB is that it takes a, tries to take a word for word translation and sometimes that's not the best translation because if i were to tell you um, there are people today that are teaching a social justice gospel and you went and looked up the word social then you looked up the word justice then you looked up the word gospel you wouldn't get what the social justice gospel teaches you might get an idea about it but it's not going to be the best way to define it Sometimes you've got to know terms and phrases. And so probably Debbie, the best thing to do in your own personal Bible study is to use something like Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub to look to set it up so you can get the Amplified Bible, which is going to expound on the definitions, the, the NASB, probably I think it's NASB 95 is the latest, uh, and then ESV. I like that better than the NIV and I could go into it. Um, later on, if you want me to, if someone wants me to, you can ask me that question, but the ESV or the NIV, but I, I prefer the ESV and then the New King James and compare them as you're making your way through. When you're reading and you've got a question about a passage, what's really being said here, then go back and compare them. And it's a good way to take a shortcut on word studies because by comparing these different versions, then you're able to kind of get the idea, oh, why is, why is the ESV translating this word this way? And why does the New King James translate it this way? And it really enhances your Bible study. Um, if you want to go further, you can go to some other ones and you can get into um, word studies. Uh, you can get into cord, uh, um, Strong's Concordance. Um, what is it? Briggs and Dags Concordance. So you can get into some other concordance to get even further into study if you want to. And um, I can tell you I do all that. I have a strong concordance on my Bible. I'll look things up through Bible Hub and Blue Letter. Um, I have Logos and I use it periodically, um, but you don't need to. You, everything that you got, you can get on Blue Letter Bible and Bible Hub, which are absolutely amazing. And it really helps your Bible study, really helps you to pour in and find the things that are there. All right, Debbie, thank you very much. It's good to see you. I hope you had a great Palm Sunday and I hope you have a great Easter. Uh, so we have the next question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, uh, hello, pastor. Can you please explain a little more how you believe non-believers may try to explain away the rapture of the church through evolution? Thank you for all you do. Thank you, Albert. I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, uh, so I, when I'm asked the question, what do you think the world's going to say about us when we're taken out of the way? The responses, the options are, were taken by aliens, but then you've got to explain why they just took the Christians and maybe the aliens observed us and they saw that Christians were hurting the world and so all the Christians were taken. Um, that um, 
we were taken by evolution. And this is one that I cite often. Um, evolution changes things and people, and if evolution were true, it is seen as changing things. And they use words like punctuated evolution because when you go back in the fossil record, it has no evidence of evolution. By the way, to this day, there are evolutionists who are not Christian, who say that evolution as it is taught is not true. They're not saying evolution isn't true. They're saying evolution as it's taught. And I'll guarantee you the evolution, if you're my age, that you and I were taught in school is not even taught anymore in any way, shape or form. And the evidence doesn't point to it in the fossil record. Years ago, we had a debate and we sponsored at Calvary Chapel of Tucson, sponsored the debate. And it was against a professor from the U of A. And um, I'm trying to remember, oh, Dr. Gish. And it was great when Dr. Gish was introduced, he had all of these accomplishments and all of these titles for what he had done. And then the professor was introduced and he wasn't that unimpressive. He just wasn't as impressive as Dr. Gish. And then when they started talking, it was obvious that Gish knew what he was talking about and that the professor had not really ever been in a debate about evolution before. And I remember Gish going into the fossil record and then the professor getting up and saying, um, uh, I don't think we should take the fossil record at all. I don't think it's relevant to the conversation. And Dr. Gish got up and just tore him apart. Not relevant to the conversation. I know why you want to give it up. I know why you don't want to look at it because you're going to lose if you do, because it doesn't show evolution. And so they came up with punctuated evolution. Everything happens really fast. And so the thinking may be that evolution's moved forward and whatever is the force behind evolution has identified the Christians as being bad and somehow through the, a force of nature took the Christians away. Um, obviously it's not true. I'm just trying to think of how people are going to explain what happened to the Christians. And um, I, I, I think that's probably one of them. I think that's probably one of the things um, that they are going to say happened to us to try to explain it. Because there are people that no matter what you say, they aren't gonna believe you. They just will not believe. You can give them the best evidence and proof for something and they aren't gonna go, good point. You know what? I'm gonna acquiesce that to you. I hope we do that. I hope that we are on such a truth quest that when someone gives us a good point, we'll acknowledge that. If, if we really and truly are on a truth quest, then we're never gonna be afraid to evaluate and examine the truth because the truth is what we want. And I can tell you from years of scrutinizing doubts and questions, passages, difficult passages in the Bible that Christianity can hold up to the scrutiny. God can handle any scrutiny you bring. So if you have doubts, bring your doubts to God. Start looking those things up. Just have a genuine heart where you really want to believe because when you look up the videos that are against it, they're by people who are not going to take any evidence and they try to lay out their attack. And when it comes to atheism, um, when it comes to attacks against the Bible, I find that they do a poor job. If they did a good job, I would admit it, but I find they do a poor job. But because it's what certain people want to hear, they'll listen to it and they'll take their arguments that can easily be refuted and they'll take them as if they're gospel. So they're people that just make up arguments as they go ad hoc. You're saying something that is really effective and they just ad hoc don't believe it. And I think that you're going to get that here near the end, Albert, when we are taken out of the way. Uh, who knows what people are going to say, but I think those two options are two of the top options, um, aliens and somehow evolution just took those wicked people off the earth. Thank you, Albert. I appreciate that. I appreciate your listening too, because obviously you've heard me say that in messages before. So um, I wanted a little bit of clarity on that and I love it. All right. So thank you uh, for that. And we have another question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. Jari says, could there have been another way for Christ to pay for our sins besides death? God is all powerful. Thank you. When were, when were words created and words just words? Okay, so I don't know what you're asking in your second question. So I'm going to not answer that one. When were words created and words, um, when man was created, Adam named the animals and then they had Babel and there was a confusion of the words, all right? 
So that's all I'm going to answer that on that one. But your first one, um, which is good. Could there have been another way for Christ to pay for our sins besides death? God is all powerful. Thank you. Um, so using logic, if God's all powerful, then he, sh he should have been able to come up with another way besides Christ incarnated, dying on the cross, shedding his blood for our sins. Using that is like using, can God make a rock so big he can't move it? If he can make a rock so big he can't move it, then he can't move it, he can't do anything. If he can't make a rock so big he can't move it, he can't make a rock so big he can't move it, so he can't do anything. And so these are logical arguments that people try to put limits on God. Uh, God created a world where life was in the blood. And we're told that in the Old Testament. And that's why sacrifices were given. And it's why Adam and Eve had an animal killed, slaughtered, maybe more, to make skins to cover themselves up, to cover their shame up because they had sinned. The animal had to lose its life to cover up their shame. That's an example of what sacrifices did. Hebrew says the blood of bulls and goats could never forgive sin, but they could only cover it up. They could never remove it. But the blood of Christ washes away our sins because his blood was perfect and the life was in the blood. And so false teachers will say things like, Jesus had to go to hell. If he had to suffer in order to die, then he had to go to hell and suffer for us. But they need to just look at the scripture a little bit closer. Jesus is suffering for us. He's taking our place for death, but we're saved by the shedding of his blood. That's what it says in Ephesians. That's what it says in other parts of the Bible. That's why in the cup of the new covenant, we have his blood, which was shed for our sins because life was in the blood. Jesus had to have his blood shed. Um, he was nailed to a tree. Adam and Eve took an apple from a tree. They used leaves from a tree to try to cover their shame insufficiently. Um, and Jesus was crucified on a tree. So maybe there's something there too with his death. Um, he had to die for the iniquity of mankind. So shedding blood and not dying was not an option. Now he was doing more on the cross than just, he's doing more on the last uh, day of his life, the suffering from Friday night until Saturday morning, if that's when you believe that Jesus was crucified. Some believe Wednesday, some Thursday, and we'll, we'll talk about those differences at some point. Um, but during that, arrested at night, crucified in the morning, he was beaten all night. He was beaten first of all by the Jewish guard, then he was beaten by the Roman guards, then he was mocked by, by Herod, then he was sent back, taken into the praetorium, um, scourged, a scarlet robe put on his back, crowns thrust on his head, a, a played a game with him that was a beating game for him. The Bible says that he took our sorrows and griefs. In the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I'm so sorrowful, I think I could die. And I don't think he took them so we don't feel them. He carries them with us. The Bible says, by his stripes we're healed. And although Peter talks about that in a spiritual sense, I think that when we get into heaven, we're going to find that the scourging of Jesus was for our healing. That we're in heaven, we're not lame, we're not sick because Jesus was scourged. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Chastisement means beating. He was beaten all night. He had his peace robbed from him all that night so we could have that strange peace. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And so we can have that strange peace. And then he had to die. And because death is the result of sin. Adam and Eve, when, they, when God gave them the fruit, he drew out the guidelines. In the day you eat of this, you will die. And they died spiritually on that day. And they started the process of dying physically. And I think we could make the case that they weren't going to die physically. That God was going to rule the world with them um, from like what would end up being an eternal state. But they went down that road. And so Jesus had to die because sin was brought into the world and death was brought into the world by Adam. And so Jesus, the second Adam, the last Adam, had to die on the cross. And by the shedding of his blood, our sins are forgiven. All right, I hope that makes sense. Um, Jari, uh, could there have been another way for Christ to pay for our sins besides death? The answer I, don't, I think is no. He had to die. And he paid for our sins 
by the shedding of his blood and dying on the cross was part of what needed to happen to redeem us from death and to be victorious. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? So our sins are forgiven by his blood. We have victory over death by him dying in our place on a tree when a tree is what was used in the very beginning. So I think that there is indeed a whole lot there. And I think it's a great question, really understanding that atoning work that takes place on the cross is really important and uh, spending some time talking about it is a really good thing. If you're joining us, if you're just joining us, really glad you're here. I hope that you guys are blessed. Um, if you have a question, then write the word question down, write your question out, reread it a couple of times. If you have a reference, then include the reference so we can take time to look it up together. I can put the scriptures up on the screen for you. And um, any questions you wanna ask about anything are open. We also just went through Palm Sunday. If you have any questions about Palm Sunday, the things that you don't understand, the triumphal entry of Jesus hailed as King, um, then we'll take those questions as well. All right, so um, good to see the moderators here, by the way, I appreciate that. Um, uh, Mary, we have a question from Mary. Mary joins us from Facebook. Mary says, question, my daughter died from a heroin abuse, but she praised God till the end and kept telling everyone about what, um, what, what, what they needed to, be, um, to bewitch. I think you mean to believe, right, Mary? So first of all, Mary, I wanna say, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry for your loss. What a hard thing it is to lose a daughter and God knows the suffering that you're going through. And we talk about him carrying your sorrow and grief, that he carries your sorrow and grief with you. And you don't say how long ago it was, but I hope that you are making it through your grief. The grief never really completely goes away, but you do move forward through grief. And grief does a work inside of us. There's something that grief does inside of us. And um, I hope you've gotten all the help that you need and if you need some more, we may be able to help you really get plugged in for it. Um, so if I'm understanding this right, she died from a heroin abuse. So she had an overdose or she got sick, but she didn't die right away. And that's what ended up killing her. And all the way to the end, she kept telling everyone about what they needed to believe is what I think that the word there that you meant instead of bewitched. I'm gonna take it as that. Um, yeah, I think your daughter's in heaven. If she loved Jesus and was trapped, it's really interesting to me. You know, we, we sometimes get super judgmental about people in sin. That person's an addict. And addicts act in awful ways. It's really hard to deal with an addict. But we look down on them. That person's an addict. But Jesus said, I came to seek and save sinners. He talked about us being in bondage to sin, in chains to sin. He knows when we are bound to it. And he knows when someone like your daughter is bound to it and she has faith and she trusted in Christ, but she struggled with it. Samson is a great example of this. Samson was, was a dumpster fire. His whole life was an absolute dumpster fire. And yet in the hall of faith, it speaks about Samson doing the things that he did by faith. And so we believe that Samson is in heaven, even though he made such an absolute mess of his life. And if your daughter believed in God, even though she had this struggle with addiction, God loves her. Jesus came for her. He came to deliver people that are bound by behavioral problems. And uh, Jesus put this in the face of religious people. He went and ate at sinners' houses, tax collectors' houses. When he called Matthew, he went that night to Matthew's house and ate there. And uh, he went to, up to Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and said, come down from that tree because I'm going to your house tonight. And the people were like, why is he going to stay at a tax collector's house? And after Zacchaeus was saved and transformed, Jesus said, now you know that the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. He looks at people struggling with sin in a much different way than we do. And may we gain God's eyes. May we see it as God sees it. And when we see someone trapped in some destructive sin, that we would love on them, we would care for them, 
that we would be the light of Christ to them. Really show them his love that they might be able to find the great forgiveness. Mary Magdalene was a woman who had seven demons in her and Jesus set her free. Matthew was a tax collector. Judas had his problems but didn't walk by faith. And so it's not just that you're a sinner and just because of that, God's gonna, get, gonna have mercy on you. But he reaches out and he comes to seek and save those who are lost. And as your daughter was dying, if she was telling people about Christ and believing in him, then she will be in heaven even though she died from a heroin, heroin overdose. Or abuse, as you say, not overdose. I, I don't know that she died from an overdose. But even though she died from an abuse, or she died from heroin abuse, she will be in heaven. All right? Thank you very much, Mary, for that. I'm going to um, grab one of my waters here. Get myself a drink of water. And while I'm doing that, I'm going to look for our next question. Again, really sorry to hear that you went through that, Mary. That is so hard and hard to watch your daughter go through <clears throat> that kind of addiction to the abuse where her life is taken. But we serve a merciful God. And no matter what, the thief on the cross done a lot of horrible things. But he said, remember me when you enter into the kingdom. And he was saved and entered into the kingdom. So we have another question here. Make sure my water's out of the way. We have another question here from Brianna. Brianna joins us from YouTube. Brianna, good to see you. Brianna says, do you know when you will be teaching Samuel 8? So many questions as I was trying to read this on my own and would love to hear you touch on it. All right, let me just go and look at what Samuel 8 is. Are you talking about, I assume you're gonna talk about 1 Samuel, all right? So there's 1 and 2 Samuel. So let's just go to 1 Samuel 8. Let me take a look at what that is and see if that's it. Um, Israel demanding a king. I can give you my thoughts on that. Um, I hope that's it. Let me go check 2 Samuel chapter 8 and see if that is also a difficult passage. David's further conquests. All right, um, David's administration. All right, I'm gonna assume you're talking about 1 Samuel since that's got Israel demanding a king. So God takes children of Israel out of Egypt and leads them into the promised land after the desert. And there's so much there. When you are in bondage, you don't always come out right into a promised land. You come out into a desert first and have to have a desert experience before you're taken into the promised land. Once they're in the promised land, God's their king, a theocracy. He rules over them. But they look around them and they see the other nations around them have a king. And so Samuel's sons are awful, okay? And when they realize when you die, your sons are gonna rule over us. And they're gonna be like the sons of Eli, which they remembered. Remember, Samuel took over for Eli, and Eli's sons were awful, and Samuel's sons were awful. And so that, instead of leading them down a path of how do we solve this, what do we need, can God raise up someone else for us, they demanded a king. There's a problem that causes them to demand their own solution. God doesn't want them to have a king. God would have had another plan that would have been better. Maybe it would have even have included David, but not as a king. Maybe as a continuation of the judges. Remember, Samuel is the last of the judges. King Saul is the first of the kings. And so Samuel gets mad. And he goes and tells God, hey, the people are rejecting me. They want a king. And God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me from being king over them. And do what they want to do. Do what they're asking. Now, there's a lot of warnings in this, Brianna. Sometimes we demand from God. We get to a certain point where we feel like, I need God to do this for me. And we tell God what to do. Sam, um, uh, Balaam asked twice to go to fight against, to curse um, uh, the Moabites, I think it was. Balak, the king of the Moabites, had gone to get um, uh, Balaam. And God told him not to go the first time, but told him to go the second time but then tried to kill him on the way, the angel of the Lord, because he just didn't take yet the, the first answer. And sometimes we demand things like God allowing Israel. God gave in the law that they could write a certificate of divorce. That's in the law. They could write a certificate of divorce. But Jesus came along and said, 
because of the hardness of your heart, God allowed it. Now we know that some of the Old Testament law could be because of the hardness of people's hearts and God allowing it. Now we can read the law in a whole new light. This is really important for people that are really critical of the law because God sometimes allows things that he doesn't want, but because he's given man free choice, he'll allow him to do certain things and he'll even make provisions for that of those allowances, which is what he did with um, divorcing in the Old Testament and what he did with the king. He gave them an allowance. Okay, give them a king, but tell them all these bad things are going to happen to them. All these horrible things. The king is going to do this. going to take your daughters, going to take your sons. You're going to have all these things happen to you. And they say, we want a king anyway. And um, so then he gives them in the, uh, some direction as to how kings are supposed to be. And even before this in the law were written, when you have kings, this is what the kings are supposed to do. They're not to to accumulate horses, they're not to accumulate wives, they're not to accumulate gold. He gave restrictions on it. So again, in the law, we have God making an allowance for something that wasn't ideal, but because it was in their heart, God allowed it. Again, this tells us so much about how the law was written and what else there might be that God allowed because men wouldn't move away from it. Men demanded it and God knew that men would end up demanding it. And so they ended up with the first king who quite frankly was a nightmare, right? King Saul started off humble, but it, it seems it humble in a weird way when you study it. And then he gets so prideful in the end that God won't even talk to him anymore. And then we get David and David's good, man after God's own heart. But before it's all said and done, David fails. And all of these people in the Bible are almost like they're being presented as the, as the, as the Messiah but they fail as the Messiah and they fail. Moses fails, David fails, right? There's failure that happens almost with every one of them. They're painted as, as one man said, warts and all throughout the Bible for a reason, because the perfect one hadn't come yet. And so David is allowed to be king and the Messiah will set upon David's throne, but it wasn't God's plan. It wasn't what God wanted. All right, Brianna, I hope that helps you with the first Samuel chapter eight, uh, there is a lot there and you're right. I mean, normally you're going to take a whole teaching to talk about all of the aspects that you find in first Samuel chapter eight. Um, not that long, really. Uh, the book of first Samuel is the next we teach through the old Testament, through the new Testament. The, um, next old Testament book is for Samuel. That's we've, we've, um, taught all the way up to that. And we're waiting to go to first Samuel. Now things got a little disjointed with COVID but we're returning back to that now and it won't be long until we're in the book of first Samuel. All right. Thank you very much, Brianna. Good to see you. Hope you have a great Easter. Hope you had a good Palm Sunday. Hope you truly are walking close to Christ. We have another question here from John that joins us from YouTube. John says, Pastor Robert, not really a question. All right. Uh, just wanted to wish you and your family and all the church family a blessed and happy Holy Week. Thank you for all you do, sir. Thank you, John. That's very thoughtful. And I appreciate you wishing everyone who's here, everyone watching right now from John P., that you would have a great Easter, that you would, a great resurrection celebration, that you would truly celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the way, our Q&A, not Saturday, but next Wednesday, we'll be taking questions about the resurrection. You will have gone to church. You will have celebrated the resurrection of Christ. Uh, and some of you who are still at home, still quarantined, uh, quarantining yourself maybe, um, you'll watch somebody. And then if you have questions, I would love to look at those questions about the resurrection. All right, this Wednesday night, we're gonna be in um, Galatians chapter two, the first, a few verses that are there as Paul talks about how he proved to himself that the gospel that he received in Arabia when he was by himself was the same gospel the other disciples had. And we'll take questions about that too as we continue on talking about the life and times of Paul. Tonight, not long from now, about an hour and 10 minutes and we'll be starting our service. All right. So um, thank you very much for those um, wishes for a good resurrection celebration. I hope it is great. I hope you guys draw closer to Christ. I hope that you really use time 
uh, to draw close to him. Me and my wife were talking about when we were saved. I was saved in 74 and she was saved in, in 79, I think. And we were talking about the emphasis the church had on quiet times and reading your Bible. Reading your Bible in, in a quiet time and seeking God every day. And I kind of reflected back on that time in my life and I thought, that's when I grew so much. That's when I memorized so much scripture. That's where I learned to wait and be quiet on God. And maybe there's been a move away from that because it was so legalistic. Uh, but I think that spending time with him, Jesus said, when you go, when you pray, go in your prayer room and seek God. I don't know if we want to get legalistic about how often you do it. And, and it got really legalistic. Your quiet time needs to be three hours long. You need to do it twice a day. You need to, if you miss a day, you're in a lot of trouble. You know, it got so legalistic. And, and that's one of the reasons that I think there's not as much emphasis on it today. But I think we should emphasize seeking God regularly, seeking God daily, going for a walk with Him, being in a prayer room with Him, learning the Bible, reading the Word. All of these things will help us in our walk with Christ to really walk strongly with Him. All right, so uh, we've come to the end of our Q&A. It's been really good hanging out with you guys today. Uh, we'll have another Q&A, Lord willing, on Saturday. We'll be looking at the book of Galatians, um, specifically that section in Paul's life and the book of Galatians fights against legalism and we could talk about, we could take questions about people believing the Sabbath will save you or baptism will save you or you got to do some kind of work in order to be saved or you have to change first before you can be saved. Um, those kind of things, any of those kind of questions um, we'll take on this next up and coming uh, Wednesday. So we're trying to kind of rework the Q&A a little bit we, we want to announce it to those that are at the teaching that we're taking questions from this teaching on the next Q&A. And we're also letting new believers know when someone comes to Christ, letting them know that there's a Q&A that I'd love to answer their questions and meet them in kind of a way and answer their questions. And so we're going to start to see more new believers show up on our Q&A. All right. So God bless you guys. Love you. Stay close to Christ. I hope you guys are truly blessed. Um, if you want to uh, join us tonight, the study in the book of Galatians has been really good. You can go on YouTube and you can catch up on it, but it's been so clarifying on the battle that Paul had against the legalists and how we are truly set free. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All right. So God bless you guys. It's good to see you again. We will see you next time. Stay close to Jesus. All right. Love Jesus. Stay 